John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them uh, when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. (laughs) After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Father, that blessing falls on us today. We are among those who believe and yet have not seen. We are gathered together as a fellowship of those who believe and have yet not seen. And Lord, there may be among us at some point today, those who have not seen and yet do not believe, are waiting to believe, want to see, need more proof, need more evidence. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would make evident by your Spirit in their hearts, faith. Make faith evident, Lord. Open the door of faith for each and every one of us. For the unbeliever who's uncertain, unsure, for the believer, Lord, who would believe more and and trust you more than we do right now. Increase faith in this place today, I pray. I come asking your Holy Spirit because your Holy Spirit has the power to do that, Lord. None of us do, so increase our faith that we might trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this weekend marks the anniversary of terror for Israel. Yesterday was Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the month of Av on the Jewish calendar, which always falls right around our July-August time frame. And Tisha B'Av being the ninth of Av, we've talked about it here many times before. It marks the anniversary of the destruction of the first temple, the Temple of Solomon in 586 B.C. It marks the anniversary of the destruction of the second temple, Temple of Herod, built up and finished, destroyed in 70 A.D. Between those two destructions, the prophets tell us Messiah had to come. He had to come and be cut off, Daniel chapter 9, before then the enemy would come in with a flood and the city be destroyed. 
The ninth of Av marks several horrific and tragic events in the history of the people of Israel. And so they commemorate this event. Now, yesterday, there were a few others wanting to commemorate this event in their own way as the Jewish people were making their way to uh, the Kotel, which is that western wall for prayer and fasting and, and observance of Tisha B'Av up on top of the Temple Mount in the Al-Aqsa Mosque were gathered a number of young Muslims who were preparing to throw rocks and bombs and firestorm just lay it out on the Jewish people down below. Word got out about this. The, the uh, Israeli police force swarmed onto the Temple Mount and yesterday the Temple Mount went into lockdown. And you want me to go to Israel, Rick? <laughs> Safest place I've, I've ever been. Anyway, talk about that another time. The Temple Mount was in lockdown. Now, you know what I mean when I say lockdown. It means we got to shut the doors, lock ourselves in. There's a danger. There is a threat. Prisons go into lockdown when there's a riot or a disturbance of some kind. Sadly, in our culture today, schools have lockdown procedures. Elementary schools to protect the children. Protocols in case of real or perceived threats, a school will go into lockdown. Theaters are discussing the idea of lockdown procedures. And it's even been brought up that perhaps churches ought to start thinking that way as well. We have security personnel, guys walking around. They'll thump you if you get out of line. (laughs) But this whole idea of lockdown, it just sits uneasy with me. I know there are dangers, I know there are threats, I know there are terrors in the world. I get it. But the idea of locking our doors, the idea of holding up in this place, really bothers me. The disciples of Jesus were in lockdown. Shut in, hold up, hiding out. John tells us specifically for fear of the Jews, verse 19 says. Well, of course they were in lockdown for fear of the Jews. Their leader had just been executed. Who who was to say they weren't next? Who was to say the Sanhedrin... With, with the, the Roman cohort, we're not fanning through Jerusalem and the Judean hills right at that time looking for any of those who consider themselves followers of Jesus to stamp out this movement. They were shut in. The doors were shut, we're told. That word shut in the Greek is klio. And klio contextually means shut and locked. Doors weren't just shut, they were locked. They were hiding. They were afraid. The disciples were in a self-imposed lockdown. And I sometimes wonder if we aren't as well. According to the Barna Research Group, 89% of American Christians surveyed, get this, 89% said the purpose of the church is to meet my needs and the needs of my family. 11% said the church... The purpose of the church is to win the world. 89%, if that's true, 89% of the church is already in lockdown. We sang the song, you know, Wake Up the Saints. And that, that moves me. And that motivates me. Because, well, listen to me carefully on this. I love you, but the church is not here to serve you. Amen. You as the church are here to get out of here and to serve this island, this 
county, this state, this nation, in the name of Jesus Christ. We were never, ever called to be a church of people in lockdown, and yet 89% of the church think that, well, that's what we're here for, to take care of our own needs, to meet our needs, to look after my family. I was watching the show Parenthood, not recommending it, but I was watching it. And they had this baptism of this little baby, and the whole attitude of this, this dedicatory event was just ridiculous. Yeah, we just do this because, you know, it's all about family. Of course, the whole Braverman family in this show Parenthood, are they believe in family. They don't believe in God. They just believe in family. So they do it because one of their numbers married to a woman whose mother, and they're going to do it for the mother because the mother wants to make sure that the child is, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I was watching it last night thinking that, that that's just the way it is in our culture. Observances, Sunday services on occasion, to meet my needs, and if I show up on a Sunday service and I really didn't meet that my needs that Sunday, well, I'm a little disappointed in the church. Eleven percent, eleven percent got it right. What did Jesus say to the church at Philadelphia? Revelation chapter three, verse seven: He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says, "I know your deeds." Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have had a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, two weeks ago, I mentioned that we have three options. Let me go over those with you one more time. We can close our doors, lock down, shut out the world with its perceived threats and dangers and just take care of our own needs. That's an option. We can cave into culture. That, that is, swing wide open the doors, nullify the truth of God's word for societal standards and norms. Just go the way of culture. Boy, that'd be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? Just flow with the culture. Doors wide open. Or, or number three, we can call the world to Christ. And that is our mission. And that is our purpose. To do the hard work of the gospel with doors open recognizing the possible threats. But doors open to bring the lost in with grace and truth. With mercy and righteousness. Not compromising on either account. Compassion without compromise. With the open door. The church of the open door. I think if I was going to rename the bridge, that's what I would call it. The Church of the Open Door. Because that's what we are to be about. Now the disciples, back to John 20, had a legitimate reason, obviously, to be in lockdown mode. Fearful, worried, terrified. They didn't have the Spirit. They didn't know, although Jesus had spent three years training them to their mission, they didn't know what they were going to do next because the leader wasn't there to tell them. And so they lock themselves in. What about us? And what does it take to go beyond closed doors? That's what I think we see here. When Jesus goes into where they are, He does so, I'll tell you ahead of time, for the purpose of getting them out of where they were. He goes in to get them out. He goes in to remind them of what they had been trained to low those many years. The purpose of the called to go beyond closed doors. What does it take for us 
to move, to motivate, to get out. To answer that, I'm going to ask a series of questions as we move through the rest of John chapter 20. A series of questions to think about this. Question number one, as we begin here, how did Jesus get in? How did Jesus get in? Verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that is Resurrection Sunday, and when the doors were shut, locked, as we saw, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace with you. The door was shut and locked. How did he get in? How did he do that? Well, he was a spirit. No, he was not. He was much more. He had a piece of fish with them and ate it in their presence, Luke tells us. And it didn't just, didn't just go plop onto the chair. <laughs> oh, wow. That's weird. It wasn't like one of those skeletons in the Pirate of the Caribbean, you know, with the wine continually going down the empty throat. He was solid. Resurrected. In his resurrected body. The door was locked shut. The apostles are inside. And John says, suddenly Jesus is there. He's just there. I love it. Luke chapter 24 verse 36 says, While they were telling these things, that is the two men on the road from Emmaus, they were there. John doesn't mention them. Luke did. They had seen Jesus. They came rushing back. They're there that evening. There's a group of the disciples, not just the apostles. So they're all standing there and suddenly Jesus just shows up. And Luke says, He himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. He wasn't in the corner of the room. He was in their midst. He just pops up. He's right there in the middle of them. Suddenly they're talking. What are we going to do? Ah, Jesus, he's right there. How did he get in? Luke says they were startled uh huh, and frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost. Well, now, boys, that's good theology. He's a ghost. He wasn't outside, knocking, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Not this time. He was in their midst and he was saying, Shalom. Peace. Peace with you. I love that the first word out of Jesus' mouth was peace. You see, he knows something. There is no peace in lockdown. There's no real security. When we get spiritually locked down, just a huddle of fear and anxiety. But hold on to that thought for a moment. Jesus saying peace. You know what's great about this moment? About the fact that Jesus just shows up, that He's just in their midst. Church of the Open Door, do you know what this means? As Jesus was in His resurrection, so will you be in your resurrected body. You can say that that Jesus is a preview of coming attractions. He shows us exactly what it means to be resurrected. To be in your new heavenly and eternal body. Solid. And yet able to just go where you want to go. Be where you need to be. The idea of walking through walls thrills me to no end. Can you imagine the fun you could have with that one ability? If I was going to be a superhero, I want that one. To be able to walk through walls. Show up scaring people all the time. It'd be a blast. 
Acts 26.23 says, By reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be, listen, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He'd be the first. Which means others would follow. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. So He's the first, and there will be others like Him. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, we will be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. How? Anybody? Imperishable. Say that with me. Imperishable. Yeah, you just described your future body. Raised imperishable. I love that. And we will be changed. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And this is critically important for us to understand. We're looking at a preview of what it means to be resurrected. Yeah, but Jesus is God. I understand that. Well, I'm not going to be a God, am I? No, you're not. But you will be changed. And you will be eternal. And you will be like Jesus. He gives us a glimpse of this. A preview. But the question was, how did Jesus get in? And the answer is, how does He ever get in? By faith. See, I believe there were already some in their midst who believed. Well, the two men from Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, they came rushing back saying, we have seen the Lord. Mary... Earlier that day, came rushing from the tomb. I have seen the Lord. John. Look back in verse 8. What does it tell us? That John saw and believed. He didn't understand, the next verse tells us. But he believed. How many of you are like that? I believe. I don't understand. But I believe. Because as we talked about Wednesday night, belief does not necessarily mean understanding. Faith doesn't necessarily mean you have it all together. You've got full knowledge and comprehension of everything that God is doing. Nobody does. Faith is simply the willingness to step out. It's the conviction of what we have not seen. It's knowing without necessarily understanding. So there were people in the room that believed. And faith gets Jesus in the door. Faith always invites Jesus in. Where there is faith, no door can keep him out. However, Luke 18, verse 8, Jesus asked a tough question. The question I would pose to the 89%. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Second question. How did Jesus get in? By faith. Second question. How did the disciples feel? I want you to try and get into their feeling for a moment if you can. Remember, Luke told us at first they were startled and frightened as though they had seen a ghost. But you can't blame them because of what they had seen. John had witnessed with his own two eyes the spear go into Jesus' side and blood and water come gushing out. They had seen him taken down from the cross. They knew he was dead. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they wrapped his body in those linen strips and laid him in that tomb. They knew he was dead. And yet, here he is. 
Let me see if I can give you a the, the gist of their song. Back in 1990, 1991, in the midst of Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, a woman by the name of Ruth Dillo received a communique from the Pentagon which read, and I quote, Your son Clayton Dillo stepped on a landmine in in Kuwait and was killed. She was inconsolable, as you might imagine. And she wrote, I cannot begin to describe my grief and my shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days, I expressed anger and loss. And for three days, people tried to comfort me, but nothing worked. True story. On the third day, the phone rang. Mom, it's me, Clayton. I'm alive. The message the Pentagon sent was wrong. Can you imagine the mess of emotions felt in that room that night as Jesus appeared in their midst? He who was dead is now alive. The Bible says they rejoice, but that doesn't even come close to capturing what must have happened in the room that night. As tears were flowing and and faces were glowing, and the whole moment was just an amazing time. No wonder Jesus first spoke peace to them. Peace. Peace. In Israel today, it is the most common greeting. Shalom. They'll say good morning. Shalom. They'll say goodbye. Shalom. They'll say, how are you doing? That's Mishalomka. Mishalomka. Which is literally, and I like this, how is your peace? Mishalomka. How is your peace? That's a great question. I asked you the same question this morning. How is your peace? Can you honestly say, sitting here today, that you are at peace with the Lord in your life? Mishlomka, how is your peace? Locking out the world will never bring peace. Shutting your doors from other people, from your fellowship, or closing these doors will never bring peace. I just need some quiet. I just want to be alone. And you can for a while, for a season, for a time. It will not bring you peace. Jesus is repeating Himself here when He says, Shalom said the same thing three nights earlier in the upper room at the last Passover. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. If there is any single hallmark of walking with Jesus, it ought to be peace. Are you at peace? Mishlom How is your peace? But here are His people. And up to this moment, they're in turmoil. They're troubled. They're trembling. Jesus says, peace. And suddenly, they are rejoicing. And what's marvelous to me is Jesus doesn't come down on them like I would have. Yeah, it's good to see you guys too. What were you thinking? (laughs) 
What is wrong with you, Peter? In the garden, and then over at Caiaphas' house, I saw. What's your problem, man? Didn't you hear me? I said, my peace. I leave with you. I see no peace going on here. Such a human reaction. And yet Jesus, He doesn't come down on them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't even mention their massive failure. The denials. He acknowledges their current fearfulness just enough to say, Peace. And verse 20 says, And when He had said this, He showed them both His hands and His side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They just rejoiced. I don't know if they cut loose singing, I don't know, but they got so excited. He's back. He's here. He's among us. Suddenly their fright is delight. Suddenly their trepidation is jubilation as they rejoice. Their heartache is now wholehearted joy. And Jesus said that's exactly what's going to happen. Look back in John chapter 16 just for a moment. John chapter 16, verse 20. On that night, three nights earlier, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, honest to God, He says, You will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, he says wisely, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. It is remarkable how quickly women want to go right back to it. You want another baby? Because I was in the room, hon. It was a terrifying night. You want to go back there? They don't remember. It's like, it just, the Lord takes that memory away. The joy overwhelms the pain of it. And Jesus says, therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And they couldn't. I guarantee you from that day forward, joy was another underlying current of being a follower of Jesus. Peace and joy. Interesting, the first three things in the listing of the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. Love, joy, and peace. And all three are taking place in this moment there in that room. Whatever the situation in life, church of the open door, that will be our experience when we see Him. When He comes, we will be overcome with rejoicing. We will shout with joy. And every single small or great pain or problem or hurt or heartache that you have had in this life will be forgotten. The former things, they're not even going to come to remembrance. Because we will see the Lord. And we will be with Him. Psalm 30 verse 11 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That my soul may sing praise to You and not be silent. Oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to You forever. Rejoicing in joy. Question number three. What was on Jesus' mind? Why show up? 
Why did he come to that place in the first place? What was he thinking about? Obviously, it wasn't to castigate the apostles. In this wonderful, elated, joyful reunion, what was the message of Jesus to his followers? Verse 21. Jesus says to them again, Shalom with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You might want to mark this down in your Bibles. That's the message. That's why He came back. That's why after His resurrection, He didn't just go straight from Hades and collecting the the souls and the saints there and going straight on up to heaven. Wait, what? He did what? That's another sermon. We'll talk about that some other time. He came back to earth. In fact, would spend 40 more days with them on the planet. Talking to them, sharing with them, bearing them up, encouraging them, preparing them. Why? Because as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. Boy, He doesn't waste any time. Barely has the word shalom settled in the room before He's on to the mission. He's on to the next thing. He immediately gives what I would call in this moment the pre-commission. There's the great commission. This is the pre-commission. And the pre-commission basically is a, a miniature version of the great commission. He will flesh it out in the Galilee later on. He'll meet the apostles up there as well. Start back into their training protocols. And he will give them the great commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What was on his mind in that appearance? First appearance to all the apostles together. He wasn't there to find fault. He wasn't there for a homecoming. He was soon to be homegoing. In fact, his main concern, listen... His main concern was not with those locked down in the room that night. His main concern was with those who were shut out of the kingdom. Those who, at that point, were not on the inside. Those who were lost. He knew His disciples were going to be okay. Remember in John 17, he prayed as much. He said, Lord, I thank you that I have not lost one of them except for the son of perdition. 11 out of 12. I have, I have kept. And I thank, thank you, Lord, for that. And he goes on to pray for them and pray for their mission and what they are going to do, what he knows they're going to do. He knows his disciples are going to be fine. He wasn't focused on them behind those closed doors. He was focused on those who were beyond closed doors. Same thing here this morning. Oh, please understand, Jesus speaks shalom to you. Mishlomka, He says. And He has concern for you and love for you and compassion for me. But His great concern is not here today. His great concern is out there today. His focus is the mission. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Interesting, in all the teaching ministry of Jesus, He never one time tells the world to go to church. <laughs> Not once. It's quite the opposite. 
what he does is tell the church to go to the world. Luke 15, 7, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He reminded me of that this last week. I was walking to church one morning, walking to the building. And I was praying, honestly, a little prayer frustration. Lord, we built the building. I saw Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. Lord, we built the building. Lord, we're here. Lord, the baptistry's finished. The water's clean. We're good to go. We're here, Lord. And I'm praying this, literally. Praying, walking along, Lord. And I want to see more. Not, not for our sake. Please understand that. At this point in my life, I really could care, about, care less about how many people are showing up on a Sunday. That's, that's not, it is the point, but it's not the point. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it doesn't mean more or less to me personally, oh, big church. No. But I'm praying, Lord, I just I want to see more people saved. As the days wind down, I want to see more people saved. More, Lord. And I'm praying this, and very gently and very quietly, I heard in my heart, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What is he saying? One at a time. One at a time. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm telling you all this right now. You keep doing what you're doing in the name of Jesus. One at a time. One at a time. Don't be looking for the big moment where all of North Whidbey Island comes flooding into the doors of the church ready to be saved. You just go after one at a time. Every one of us have a call to go one at a time. One at a time. Because you know the moment in in that room, in that place that was locked down that night when Jesus shows up, the rejoicing that was going on right there pales in comparison to the rejoicing among the angels when one single sinner gets saved. So we keep going. Now, for the 89%, which I'm convinced is not represented here, J.C. Ryle once put it this way. He said, The highest form of selfishness is for a man who's content to go to heaven alone. The highest form of selfishness is for a man who's content to go to heaven alone. Now don't pack your bags for a guilt trip. That's not what this is about. But pack your bags because you have been sent. You and I have been sent. Now listen, this is huge. Question number four. How had the Father sent Jesus? Because He said, As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. So we better know, we better understand, maybe delve a bit into how did the Father send Jesus? And the answer is simple, one word, incarnationally. Jesus came, the incarnation of God the Father. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that... God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As the Father has sent Me, Jesus says, so I also send you. How did the Father send Jesus? God was in Jesus. And God was Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh, God among us. That's what the incarnation means. It means God became man. It means He put on an earth suit. It means He walked among us and lived among us and brought the truth to us. And that's how God sent Jesus. And so Jesus says, and so I also send you. Now, be careful. And don't get all heady with this. But listen to how Paul puts it. Colossians 1.27 God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Back in 2 Corinthians 5, again, Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And now Paul says, Christ is in you. God was in Christ, Christ in you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Verse 22. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a very simple question. Where did the Holy Spirit come from when He said this? It came from within Jesus. He came from Jesus. Do you understand the graphic representation here that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ? This is the most perfect and beautiful explanation of that in the entire Bible. Receive my Spirit, He says to them. I can't help but immediately be transported back to the first breath given to man. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And you Bible students know the word breath and wind and spirit. Same word in the Hebrew. Same word in the Greek. The Hebrew word ruach means breath or wind or spirit. The Greek word pneuma means breath or wind or spirit. Same word in both languages. Same meaning. And so what happened in Genesis chapter 2 is the very first breath of God gave us our spirits. Breathed into us life. Not just beating hearts. Because He didn't do that with any of the other animals. He didn't gather all the dogs and go, I'm giving you my breath. And suddenly you have dogs who know the Lord. He didn't do that. Only man. He breathes. And man suddenly has is a living being. An eternal being. Because the Spirit came from the Father, giving us Spirit, giving us life. That was the breath of God, giving us our spirits. Here, the breath of Jesus gives us His Spirit. The apostles already had their spirits. Now Jesus breathes on them and gives them His Spirit. Now again, don't get weird on me. You are not Christ. So here's the difference in the incarnation. Jesus came incarnationally God in the flesh. His Spirit and God's Spirit, same Spirit. But, while you are not Christ, I am not Christ, not in the same way that Christ is God, He gives His Spirit to abide in and with all those who believe in Him. 
So, right up here before you this morning, I'm, I'm functioning in my spirit. By His Spirit. And His Spirit now dwells alongside my spirit in me, and I become an incarnational minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see how that works? As the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. No sweeter breath was ever breathed than the breath of Christ on that night. Receive my spirit, he says. Have you received his spirit, by the way? Have you received his spirit? You want to be certain? Let me me give you a key. If you're uncertain as to whether or not you've ever received his spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 tells us the following. Peter said to them, we're going to talk about this in just a week or two. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be immersed. Here's water. Be immersed. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive my Spirit. For the promise, Peter says, is for you and your children and all who are far off, that's us, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Now please understand, don't be confused by all this baptism and then there's receive the Spirit and receive the Spirit of God and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How does this, this all work? It's actually very simple. That when Jesus says, receive my Spirit and breathe on the apostles, it was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Really? Yeah. The same giving of His Spirit to any who would receive His Spirit that Peter talks about when he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God. What about the baptism of the Spirit? That came after. Because as far as I can tell scripturally, John chapter 20 comes before Acts chapter 2. And in John 20, Jesus says, Receive my Spirit. His Spirit from that moment forward began to indwell the apostles. It wasn't until Acts chapter 2 that His Spirit came upon the apostles in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus called it that. Acts chapter 1 verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He'd already breathed on them. He'd already told them, receive my Spirit. And now He tells them, and you're going to be baptized with my Spirit not many days from now. And we talked about this previously in our studies in John. That the Holy Spirit indwells. That the Holy Spirit comes alongside. That God's Spirit comes upon in power to witness and to minister. And that's how He works and functions. The breath of Jesus here in John chapter 20 took place 50 days before the baptism of the Spirit that we see at Pentecost. But again, we're going to get into that in our next study through the book of Acts. For now, just get this, very simple thing. The presence precedes the power. The presence precedes the power. Why is that important? Because the presence of Christ is more important even than the power. You don't give your life to Jesus because you want the power. You give your life to Jesus because you want Him. And the presence precedes the power and He gives Himself to the apostles in a way He never had before when He breathed on them. 
And He wants to make it clear, I believe, to you and to me that He will be with us in the sending. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Receive my Spirit. I'm going with you. I will be with you. Just as He had done with Moses and Israel, by the way, Exodus 33, verse 13, He said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then He said to him, Moses said to the Father, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. One slight difference. The presence of God was with the people of Israel in the midst of their camp constrained to the tabernacle inside the holy place, inside the holy of holies above the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Today, when He says, I'm sending you out and I will go with you, He's right here. And my heart has become the holy of holies. It's astounding. But He's not sent us out alone. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Well, okay, question number five. What are we sent to do? What are we supposed to do in this sending? And the church still debates this. Oh, maybe not in in words, but certainly in deeds and action. The debate is out there. What is the church supposed to be about? What are we up to? Well, Jesus now clearly defines the mission in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. That's, that's kind of scary. And if you misunderstand what he's saying, it can be a bit arbitrary. I mean, is this the power of arbitrary forgiveness and an arbitrary judgment? Do we have that authority? The sin nature in me says, cool. I can pick and choose who I want. I can say, alright, that dude's okay, she's out. I like him, he's in. Forgiven. She's sinning, she's gone. I like her, yeah, she's pretty faithful, she's in. He hasn't shown up in three weeks. Gone! Forgiveness, condemnation, forgiveness, condemnation. <laughs> the power, right? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Some read this and they say, well, it's got to be apostolic. You know, to be able to forgive the sins of people and, and then to retain their sins. That's got to be an apostle thing, right? Hey, the apostles were no more capable of handling this than you are. They would have messed it up too. So if it was for the apostles, if it's just an apostolic promise, then you're telling me that generation of the church had it, but no generation has had it since. That doesn't make any sense. Why does John write it down for all to hear across all generations? Why is it connected to the receiving of the Spirit of Christ? Receive my Spirit. I'm sending you. Here's my Spirit. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. And if you forgive the sins of any, they've been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I have the Spirit of Jesus. Therefore, I have this authority. The right question is, authority to do what? In the Greek, if you're reading this correctly, it's even more literally, if you forgive the sins of any, listen, 
their sins have already been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, guess what? Their sins have already been retained. Thoroughly confused? In Matthew 16, verse 19, we have a similar statement where Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, literally, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's the same kind of phraseology that that Jesus is using here. If you forgive someone's sins, guess what? They're already forgiven. And if you retain someone's sins, guess what? They're already retained. What exactly does that mean? What does that tell us? It tells us we're not doing anything that hasn't already been done. And if you're still confused, let me put it to you this way. We don't provide forgiveness, but we do proclaim it. Does that make sense? We proclaim the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. That's part of the sending. And we don't determine sinfulness, but we do declare it. I think the forgiveness part is easier on the church. The declaration of sin is the tougher one. We have the authority in Christ to confirm another person's forgiveness. I can say, with with godly authority, I can say, your sins have been forgiven. Let me just show of hands. How many of you have given your life to Jesus Christ? Let me say this to you all clearly. Your sins have been forgiven. And I have the right to say that. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus told me. And it's not something that I did for you. Because there are a few of you, I'm not sure, you know. (laughs) I don't have the right, but I do have the authority to proclaim what God has proclaimed. What He has done. And He has forgiven your sins if in fact you are in Jesus Christ. And if you're not, right now, your sins are retained. And I have to tell you, if you're not in Jesus, your sins are retained. They're still there. And I have the right to tell you that. And I don't tell you joyfully or gleefully. I say it sorrowfully, but it is the truth. We have the the authority to confirm forgiveness. We have the authority to confirm sinfulness. But the caution, gang, in either case is not for the sake of judgment. It is for the sake of salvation. Why, Rick, would you tell anybody that they still have sin in their life? That they might be saved. That they might recognize and repent. That I might be able to declare that the Father has forgiven them. Because He has. We are not to dance around the issues. Jesus, when He sends us, sends us again in grace and in truth. In mercy and in righteousness. Don't dance around the issues. Don't walk on eggshells. Don't be afraid to offend Christians today are so cowed by the fear of that label of bigot. The label of intolerance. Oh, you're just intolerant. And you know what's happening is that the devil would shut you down. Lock those doors. Well, I can't can't tell her that she's making sinful choices. Yes, you can, and, and you probably should. If, in fact, those sin choices are taking her straight to hell. I have heard this recently, I have said the same thing. What is more loving? 
to deter someone from hell or to tolerantly accept that that's where they're headed. We're called with a dual message and the message of the gospel is both. Jesus wants to forgive you, will forgive you, will you receive His forgiveness? And if not, we are all burdened with a sin nature that needs His forgiveness. So many are afraid to simply speak what God has already declared. I won't belabor the point, but let me just say this. Some need to hear forgiveness pronounced. I know Christian brothers and sisters who every now and then need forgiveness pronounced. They need the reminder, a tap on the shoulder. Hey, you're forgiven. Hey, you're saved. Hey, you belong to Jesus. Sometimes we just need to hear that. And others need to know that yes, they are walking in sin. Yes, they are choosing a path of destruction to be warned with all gentleness and grace and compassion that right now as it stands, yes, I believe you're separated from God. Now they may stomp out of your presence, they may be angry, they may call you a bigot, but it's in there. Am I separated from God? And that may be the one seed you offer somebody that ends up saving their life. You know, it's funny, we have all kinds of warning signs on beaches against shark attacks. Nobody's upset by those. Is that bigotry? Take that shark attack sign down. The poor sharks. When we were in Southern California, I heard it was Shark Week. Are you kidding me? We're celebrating the sharks that are killing people. That's fantastic. I am a shark bigot. Opposed to all sharks. Put up the signs. Declare sharks dangerous. Surfers dumb if you're with the sharks in the water. Come on, guys. How much more? How much more when we're talking about hell? Why would we keep silent? Why wouldn't we at least put up the sign? We have been sent, and this is what Jesus is saying, we have been sent with the authority to bring the full gospel of Jesus Christ, both in grace and in truth. Do we understand that? As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Question number six. We're almost done here. Question number six. What kind of plan is this? I mean, think about it. A handful of huddled scaredy cats. And this is the starting lineup. These are the first 11 onto the field. They need a 12th man. Desperately. I mean, that's the starting group. The 11 and a handful of others. Here you go. Bible tells us over that period of, of 50 days, actually 40 days that Jesus was there, 50 days until Pentecost. Over that period of time, in 40 days, Jesus appeared to as many as 500 of the brethren. You know how many were in the upper room waiting after Jesus ascended? 150. Where's the other 89? I mean, the other 350. Where are they? What kind of plan is this, Jesus? You might ask in that moment, well, (laughs) 20 centuries later, we can declare the plan has worked. It's worked. How? Read on. Verse 24. Quickly. 
But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. I like to call him T. Diddy. (laughs) Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days... His disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. By the way, this is the next Sunday when you see eight days by the Jewish calendar. Now you're, you're on to, you know, it starts in the evening and goes to the next day. Just trust me, it's, it's next Sunday night. Okay? And on that next Sunday, his disciples were again inside and Thomas is with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been locked, shut. And he stood in their midst and he said, Shalom with you. Once again, Jesus gets in. You just can't keep him out. And this time, he came for one reason. And one reason alone. T. Diddy. Now let me be really serious. He came for Thomas. The others had already seen him. He came back for Thomas. Well, unless I see the nail prints... Put my finger in the hole, my hand in his side, Thomas says. I will not believe, but Jesus comes back for Thomas. His name, Didymus, that's a nickname, it means the twin. Some speculate, we don't know, but some have thought maybe he was called the twin among the apostles because he looked so much like Jesus. So they called him the twin. And certainly in other times, you know, Thomas was a man of great bravery. He was ready to die with Jesus. Well, if we're going to go down to Jerusalem and die, let's get on with it, he would say. Later in his mission work, tradition tells us he was speared in the back, a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went with the gospel call. But on this particular night, Jesus shows up. And he's about to repeat to Thomas the very same calling as the other apostles. Verse 27 Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. He meets Thomas right where he's at. You need to put your finger in the nail holes? Go ahead. You want to put your hand in my side? Here it is. He doesn't tell Thomas you're foolish. He just says, go ahead. But then he says, now, stop your disbelief. Start believing, Thomas. And verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas' absolute declaration of the deity of Christ when Christ does not correct him. He receives that claim. And in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. They who did not see and yet believed fill this room this morning and are proof that the plan worked. That this was his idea all along. To breed, to nurture, to cultivate, to develop faith through those who were sent to those who would receive it. And it's still working, and he's still saying that. Blessed are they who did not yet see, and yet, or who did not see, and yet believed. 
church of the open door. We are living proof of the plan of God. Your life is living proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you take with you. And now part of the plan that we are sent just as the Father sent Jesus. We're in this thing. We're in this thing. And we have been called to go beyond beyond closed doors. Can I encourage you with just one last thing before we go? Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the moment. If you are to be sent and we and I am to be sent and we are, don't miss the moment like Thomas did. He's no different than the others. They all believed because they had seen, right? They're not better than Thomas. He's just a week late and a shekel short. <laughs> but he missed the moment. And if I were Thomas, because it's just the way my head works, I would have spent the rest of my ministry life realizing I missed Resurrection Sunday. I wasn't there that day. I missed that first appearance of, oh I, yeah, he came, I know, he came, and he came for me, which is personal and special and powerful, but, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there the first Sunday. And the early church met weekly. In fact, met every Sunday evening to commemorate that first appearance. And they would pray in the Aramaic, Maranatha, our Lord come. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed out. Where was he? I don't know. Some think he was walking the streets of Jerusalem. Bring it on, Jews. Bring it on, Rome. Come on. Come get me. Others think he was just too depressed to even get out of bed. We don't know. All we know is that he wasn't there. And I can tell you this with absolute assurance. If we miss the moment, cynicism, skepticism, Doubt and insecurity are all cultivated behind the closed doors of, listen, absence from fellowship. The more time I spend away from the fellowship, from other believers, the more skeptical I get. The more cynical. Or at least the more insecure I get in my faith. The more time I spend around brothers and sisters in Christ, the stronger I am and the more able I am to go and do what I was sent to do. And that is declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is not about church attendance and it's not about taking up the roles because we don't do that here at the bridge. If you're, I, Honestly, I don't know who's here and who's not. You might say, well, that's real nice, Rick. I showed up. You didn't even know I was there. I don't. <laughs> I barely remember that I was there. You know, I mean, it's... Because week in and week out, I just I see everybody. I, I see that you're here now. I know. Congratulations, Rick. You're bright. <laughs> it's not about the roles. It's about you. The Hebrew writer says, "Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." The further away from Christian fellowship I get, the more my life locks me down. 
the more I get stuck behind a closed door instead of out sharing the gospel of Jesus. And yet the more I'm in fellowship, the more invigorated I am, the more energetic I am, the more passionate I am about telling this world about Jesus. And that's why we need fellowship. And I can barely get to Wednesday night, my friends. That's me. Some of you are much stronger than I am. I get that. But I barely make it from closing up the book and stopping worship to our gathering back together on Wednesdays. I can't wait. Seriously, I, I can't wait. I know Jesus didn't tell the world to go to church. He sent the church to the world. But dear family, I'm saying to you right now, the church needs to go to church. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the moment like Thomas did. Acts 2.42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let me end with a spiritual oxymoron for you. To get beyond closed doors as we have been called to do, we must meet behind open doors. To get beyond closed doors, we must meet behind open doors to welcome in the lost, to pray together, to break bread, and to be equipped and encouraged as the day draws near. That's why you're here this morning. That's why I'm here. May we be the church of the open door. Let's stand up together. John finishes out the book. In verse 30, let me read it to you. I know there's chapter 21, that's the epilogue, and we'll check out the epilogue Wednesday night. But in verse 30, John writes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and that believing you may have life in His name. Haven't seen this before. John says two things there. He says these are written that you might believe. Unbeliever, non-believer. This is so you'll believe. That's why we read the story and tell the story again and again. The Gospel, so that you might believe. But that's not all. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, He says, and that by believing, we have life. Life in His name. Life right now. Then we'll head on into eternity. And Father, I am so thankful for the life that You've given me. I I rejoice, Lord, that I get to live here and now in these last days. And Father, times are hard. And there's a lot to be fearful of. And the threats to the church, even in America, are growing. I know that. There's danger out there. There is struggle. And more and more, Father, it kind of seems like being a follower of Jesus is very similar today like it was in those couple of days after the crucifixion. There are threats. But I cannot think of a better place, a better time to be alive than right now. Because, Lord Jesus, we are anticipating your imminent return. We believe and we have declared over and over, any time now, Lord, we have seen in your word everything, Father, 
that must be fulfilled in prophecy has been fulfilled. Everything has been done. And so now we await your return. And I pray, Father, you will invigorate our fellowship to live for you, Lord Jesus, to go as you came to us, to be sent as you were sent, Lord. And I pray, Father, that in that rejoicing, as we go out in love and joy and peace, that this world will see. And one by one by one, people will get saved. In Jesus' name, amen. And if that's you, if you desire to be saved, if you desire to put the sin away once and for all, to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus, then I invite you to come forward this morning. We'll pray with you. You can be baptized today. And if you have any other prayer needs, please come forward. Prayer team, come on up while we we sing together. Why don't you come forward?